So throughout the last several weeks during the season of Advent, we've been returning each Sunday to this passage and considering just sort of a little piece of it um, each week. And what I really want to focus on on this final Sunday of Advent is just this last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And the, the this that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish is a pretty staggering this. We've been, we've been looking at it for the last several weeks. And, and the promises that have been made here in this passage and which are made throughout Scripture are these promises of a, a descendant of King David who will be a king through whom God's light will burst forth in fullness upon the world, bringing an end to shame and darkness amongst God's people, bringing a complete end to violence and oppression, an end to rulers like the ones in China who are persecuting a church of a hundred people because they're so afraid of the king that that church proclaims. So the only authority that exists is entirely competent and pervasively good, and that violence is nowhere to be found. It's a, it's a promise of an entirely new, renewed creation. And I recognize that in a room this size, there are people who are probably across the spiritual spectrum, maybe some who don't believe this, some who aren't sure what you believe. But even for those of us who do believe thoroughly in Jesus Christ and in this promise that he's going to renew creation, this is such a staggering promise that it, it's worth asking yourself, do we really believe this? Like that one day, all things will be made new in Christ. Because it, it is hard to be affected the way we ought to be by these promises. And I've been thinking a lot lately about why that is. And I think part of it is simply the same reason that it's hard for us to feel impressed by lots of marvelous truths. Like, some things are just too remote from our experience to really land on us. For example, I read a few weeks ago about the Voyager 2 probe. Anybody read about this? Which was launched in 1977, four years before I was born, which for my entire life and several years beyond has been zooming through our solar system and just entered interstellar space after passing through what's known as the heliosphere, the vast bubble of plasma and particles generated by the sun and stirred in solar winds. And it's now 11 billion miles past the sun. And, and people at NASA can still communicate with this thing, which has been flying through space my entire life. When I hear that, I can just tell I'm not as blown away by that as I ought to be because it's just too much to comprehend. There are some truths that even though we believe them, they are so far beyond our experience that it's hard to be fully struck by them because they're, they're, just, they're just too magnificent. Other things are, are hard to grapple with or, or really apprehend just because they're too far in the future. You know, if you're a young person this morning, you know, still of school age, you probably believe that one day you will be an old woman or that one day you will be an old man, and even that one day you will die. But that doesn't feel real in a way that actually impacts how you live today. 
It's not because you don't believe it. It's not because you would dispute it. It just doesn't land on you. And I think for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, that is what this promise of a new creation is, is like often. We believe it, but it is so remote from our existence, it's hard to be affected by it the way we, we ought to be. And on the other hand, what does feel real is what is right in front of us in our lives and in our world. Realities that are often dark and trying and trivial. Those are the things that feel real enough to impact how we live today most of the time. And so this, this passage from God's Word is given to us in order to capture not just our intellects but our imaginations with this picture of a new creation and of the reign of this good king in, in order to, to help us to, to understand that because of God's zeal, his desire to do good and to renew the world, we have a guarantee that he is not yet done bringing light to the world. And he wants us to be able to apprehend this future coming of his light in its fullness in a way that actually fills us with hope right now because he is not yet done bringing light into the world. So I want to just consider a couple things from this passage as we, as we wrap up Advent together. And the first of them is I want us to consider a little bit of what we can see from this text about the nature of God's light. We need to perceive the na- you know, what does this mean when we talk about God's light? And one of the things we see about God's light in this passage is that it shines upon those who are dwelling in, not just in darkness, but in self-imposed darkness. You know, the, the earlier, uh, one of the earlier messages on this passage uh, involved looking at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And the darkness that these people had been walking in is described at the start of the passage as gloom, anguish, and contempt. Not mincing any words. And if we read these verses in light of the story of the Bible, we know that this was a self-imposed gloom, anguish, and contempt. God had redeemed his people from Egypt. He had given them land. He had given them his word. He had given them the worship of the temple. He had given them his presence. And they had said, "Mm, we think we're better off elsewhere. We think we can find good apart from you. We got this. And the, the act, this act of, of treachery committed by God's people in the Old Testament is, is a microcosm of the human race as a whole. And our ongoing declaration of independence from God. Now, in the context of a world where human beings have turned from God and ushered in sin and death to our experience, I don't mean to suggest that every instance of darkness that any person experiences is a direct result of some sin. You know, in the case of our brothers and sisters in China, whom Jeff was mentioning, it seems to be more a result of their faithfulness. And yet, humanity as a whole has imposed darkness on ourselves. And if we examine our own experience, we know that the choices we have made have often led to a great deal of the emotional turmoil and relational turmoil that we experience. 
We're familiar with self-imposed darkness. But this passage tells us that God shines his light on those who are walking in self-imposed darkness, that he's actually zealous to do so. He loves to shine his light on those who are walking in self-imposed darkness. And the reason he has this zeal to shine his light on self-imposed darkness, we see here, is because he's wonderful. I love verse 6. For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I love that the first word describing what this child will be like is wonderful. What is wonderful about him? Well, first, he's, he's a gift to us, unto us. He's, he's a gift to us. We see he's also a descendant of David, but not just in any ordinary descendant of David. This is God come in the flesh because he's a son of David, but he's referred to as mighty God. And he uses this might not to crush his people who are walking in self-imposed darkness, but to rescue them. He's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. We're giving titles of power and of goodness that are utilized in order to rescue those who are walking in self-imposed darkness because he is wonderful. So wonderful, in fact, that his wonderfulness is singable. You know, that's why Handel's Messiah continues to be such a favorite piece. You know, wonderful, counselor. I can't actually sing. Some people in this room can. But even this text itself shows us that his wonderfulness is singable because if you have the text in front of you in a, a printed Bible, it's put into poetic form. It's put into verse. It's put into song. As Isaiah writes about this king who's going to come and shed light on those who walk in a darkness, it's not enough to simply convey the message. It has to be sung. This is a portrait of an honorable king, a king of light, bringing glory and restoration to those who live in self-imposed darkness and who is happy to do so. And it is such wonderful news that it has to be sung because it is so marvelous that an honorable king would have such mercy on those who brought dishonor upon themselves. I don't know how many of you a few weeks ago watched the, the funeral at the National Cathedral for President George H.W. Bush. Um, there were several eulogists, and they all spoke to a different aspect of their experience of um, the former president. One of them, whose, whose, uh, whose words I really enjoyed, was Senator Alan Simpson. He was from, uh, a senator from Wyoming. And I just want to read to you um, part of his remarks. He said, My time in Washington was rather tumultuous. I went from the A socialist to the Z, and I never came back to the A. In one dark period, I was feeling awful low, and all my wounds were self-inflicted. All of them. And George called me early one morning and said, Ah, I see that the media is shooting you pretty full of holes. Why don't we go up to Camp David? You and Anne come over and we'll have a long weekend. 
At that time, his popularity rating was 93%. Mine was 0.93%. And so off we went. The media, of course, all gathered as we headed to Marine One. That's the helicopter that takes him from the White House lawn. And George said, now wave to your pals over there in the media. And they didn't wave back. So the next morning, George is reading through all the newspapers in the U.S. And he looks up and he says, aha, here's the one I've been looking for. The picture of Barbara and Ann and George with his arm and hand on my back. And later I said, George, I am not unmindful as to what you're doing. You're propping up your poor old wounded duck pal while you're at the top of your game. You reach out to me while I'm tangled in rich controversy and taking my lumps. And he said, yep. This was the picture of a leader who, at the time, who was an honorable leader, willing to come to his friend who had, according to his own testimony, brought self-imposed darkness and dishonor upon himself. And to put his arm around him, even at the risk of absorbing his dishonor, in order, so to speak, to place his honor upon his friend. That's just a dim portrait of what Jesus Christ has done for us in taking our sins upon himself in the darkness of the cross so that through faith in him he could shine his light on us. And that means that if you have stepped into the light of Christ, the risen Christ, then you can, when your regrets and failures come to mind, and if anybody have regrets and failures, if you're like me, you know, you have a few at least, you can sing at them. When your regrets and failures threaten to crush you, when your self-imposed darkness feels absolutely blinding, if you have or if you will step into the light of the King who came to take your darkness upon Himself in order to shed light upon you, then you can actually sing of His triumph. Sing at your regrets and failures rather than be crushed by them. So that's, that's the nature of this light of the king. It comes to those in self-imposed darkness because he's wonderful, so wonderful we can sing about it. And the second thing, only other thing, it's not a three-point, just a two, is we can, and this, is, this flows out of what we've already been saying, we ought to take heart because his light has already dawned. This zeal of the Lord of hosts that our passage closes with has already set into motion a process by which the light of this king, the son of David, Jesus, is already shining. You can see this in the very Hebrew verb tenses. Those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light when this came to the original recipients of this message. Even though the promise of Jesus was hundreds of years in the future, it was so certain that the prophet wrote it as though it had already taken place. And we who have the benefit of living on the other side of the cross know the story of Jesus. We can read about in Matthew 4 where Matthew's gospel quotes this passage from Isaiah. Now when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, 
the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has been risen so that repentance and forgiveness of sins can be preached in his name to all nations. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's already shining. There's an uh, island I read about on a travel website called Svalbard. It belongs to Norway. It's actually a series of islands. And it's halfway between the mainland of Norway and the North Pole. So it's really far north in the Arctic Ocean in a place where the sun during the wintertime disappears completely from view for several months. And in this article by a, I take it to be a Norwegian gentleman named Bas Van Oort. I'm partly Norwegian, so I can enjoy chuckling at the name. My mom's maiden name was Egerud, so... So any Norwegians, don't be offended that I pronounced the name so dramatically. Uh, he, he writes, I think this was actually from a year ago, this year the sun is due to return to the city of Longyearbyen on, on Svalbard on the 8th of March. On this date, people will gather at the old hospital stairs. The sunlight can be seen first on the top step due to a small gap in the surrounding mountains. Hundreds of people join in the tradition each year, wearing sun costumes and face paint, chanting traditional Norwegian songs and hymns, or, uh, rhymes. There's a saying that Svalbard has five seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and then two winters, the dark winter and the light winter. The dark winter or polar night when the sun doesn't rise at all is followed by a period of twilight in February and early March. The second winter is the favorite for many people on the island. The colors of the sky and landscape can change by the hour, and it feels like the sun could rise above the horizon at any minute. But it doesn't. It's a tease that lasts for weeks. But of course, then eventually, the sun does come in its fullness. And what what God's Word is telling us, brothers and sisters, is that we are living right now in the, se the, the second winter. The polar night of utter darkness is gone. And the light is already shining. Because Christ has shed light on the deepest sorrows and darkness of human experience. We wonder, why is it that humanity feels lost and yet has a pervasive, comprehensive sense that the darkness of human life does actually matter. It's not just a cosmic accident. Human suffering matters. It's because Jesus says, because you were made in God's image, and you were meant for life with me and not for death apart from me. And we wonder, how is it that we can feel loved and accepted and like we are okay and have a secure future, even though we are filled with such guilt and shame and insecurity? And it's because Jesus has said, because you can come and step into the light and tell the truth about yourself. And I will wash away your sins and accept you fully. And we wonder how can God, how can we trust a God who presides over a world where so much darkness is present? And Jesus has said essentially that even though we don't have all the answers, 
I am not aloof from the darkness. I came and tasted it. The darkness of death itself for you so that you would not have to, so that you could be restored to God. He is the son of David, the great king who, who answers these questions, who sheds light on our hearts, on our life, on our world. And we are in the second winter. And it might feel like a tease, as though the sun is never going to rise in its fullness, but it will, even at the end of a long winter. Some of you, uh, this might be a dangerous story to tell in Chicagoland, but some of you know the story of the fifth inning of Game 3 of the 1932 World Series at Wrigley Field, where Babe Ruth took strike one, took strike two, didn't like the calls, and everyone in the fans were jeering at him. I can't believe people in Chicago would be impolite to a guest. That's not possible. But he pointed his bat toward center field, calling his shot, and on the next pitch, <laughs> hit it over, way over the center field wall. Listen, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I hate the Yankees too, okay? Just I'm not gloating. But it's a, it's a famous moment because it is sort of a bad thing, you know, for, I mean, bad in the, mm, that's bad, man, sense for a leader to sort of call his shot and then pull it off. This passage, this promise, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, is the Lord essentially calling his shot. I am going to bring the light in its fullness. This is the promise he's given us, and he wants us to apprehend it now in a way that fills us with hope. That's why we sing together. That's why we worship. That's why we seek him together. And so, brothers and sisters, turn your eyes towards this light and be filled with hope. We, uh, we take some time each week uh, at the closing of, of the preaching of God's word to confess our sins to God. And so let's take some time quietly and then we will pray with the words that are printed for you in the community confession of sin where uh, we will read together when the words are emboldened. But let's go to the Lord admitting in particular the ways that we have not sought His light. And let's go with the, the gladness and the, the comfort that comes by knowing that He loves to shine His light on those who don't deserve it. Let's pray together and then I'll lead us. Heavenly Father, your Son is our truest hope, worthy of our undivided faith. He is the source of our deepest joy, and in him alone do we have peace. Yet we confess that we so often look elsewhere for these things. We place our hope in the promises of this world, and we trust the things we feel we can control. We seek satisfaction and peace in the pleasures and comforts of the moment, we confess to you and to each other that we are idolaters. We have sinned against you who love us. Unfulfilled and ashamed, we ask for your forgiveness. By your Spirit, turn our hearts toward Jesus. Help us to look to him for all that we need 
that we might serve Him faithfully to the glory of Your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear this good news of the Gospel also from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 5. The prophet Isaiah declares that the great light that God has promised comes to take our sins away with these words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are at peace with God. Thanks be to God.